Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. This is quite a unique episode for me to do. For those of you who don't know, and some of you, probably many of you who listen to the show regularly do know this. I had been uh, for several years now working on a project to combine the world of transformation or ontological work with shareholder activism, simply because it's a much more significantly more effective way to make an impact to companies than your typical management consulting, cost-cutting, and all that jazz. Nothing wrong with it. It just has severely more limited results and it also much more unreliable and a harder game to play. But that's the predominant model. That's the predominant game that shareholder activists play. And you can be very good at it, right? There's people who are better than others and there are people that are, have a good track record at playing that game. But there's another game to play where you're actually transforming companies. It's actually easier, takes less time, and it's more reliable. I did an entire episode on that, so I'm not going to actually go into the details on this episode. For those of you interested in that episode, I'm going to link it to the show notes. And it's simply called A New Model for Shareholder Activism. And I go pretty deep into, into that world. I also have a website where I outline how this works a little bit more and I have some white papers and frequently asked questions. Highly recommend the frequently asked questions. You can go to proxyactivism.com and you can get some more information from there. That of course you go and just do a call with me and some of my colleagues and get a, a deeper sense of some of the work that we've done with companies over the many years. This episode particularly comes from a common myth that's not really said, but it's in the background. And it often prevents people from seeing the opportunity. And the myth that gets shared, the myth that gets percolated into the business community is if you can't measure it, doesn't matter. Or if you can't measure, it doesn't exist. So many of the questions when looking to bring, say, consultants in, is they're asking questions from the wrong game. And by asking the wrong questions, you end up bringing in people who are actually not playing the, the, the game you'd actually want to play. So for example, if I was having some major cultural dysfunction, I might ask the question, if I didn't really understand how this stuff worked, I'm going to ask the question, what, what was the three, what were some tactics that you used to change the culture? What were some tactics that you used to transform the, the business around? And the people that are actually doing transformational work, they will roll your eye, roll their eyes with a question like that and probably not be very attracted to working at that company. And it's usually an HR person, you know, asking something like that. So typically that your typical HR questions that get asked, you end up attracting these consultants or flavors of the fucking month for, for people who are interested in making entire presentations that don't cause anything that are actually quite useless, but they check a box for HR departments or they fit in nicely with the spreadsheet. 
So we go a bit deeper into that. I'm co-leading this program with uh, John. So this is actually an excerpt from a program I led earlier this week. And it was our sixth week into this particular tribal leadership program. And I'm actually co-leading the program with John, who wrote one of the top business books of all time. And it was New York Times bestseller, Tribal Leadership, which gives a very surface view on his work. So with that, without ado, I hope you enjoy the episode. And this is a very, not only important topic for me, but I've really devoted a lot of my life to this. If you have any other questions for me or want to have further discussions, whether you actually want to bring me and my colleagues in to a company, or you're just curious and you, and you want to learn, I'm always happy to have conversations with listeners and people about this in general. I love these kinds of conversations. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Jeffrey, I'll share with you something personal that you'll find that as you play this leadership game, and you'll see, not only will you see there's not a lot of people doing it, people will start to wonder, like, what's going on in this office? Or how did this happen? And generally, people are asking the wrong question. And they'll want to see, what's the thing you did? What's the tactic that had people start performing better? They're, they're still in that conversation. What's the secret sauce? Yeah. And where I, where I deal with this a lot, the being in the investment world, one of the things that I've been working at the last few years is trying to bring this work into public companies to make a difference with public companies. It's called shareholder activism. It's a very different way of doing it than just your typical cost cutting. I would say a superior way of doing it. The thing that I run into, which has become a problem, is I can show all these successes. And I just had a situation like this about a week ago. And we created this entire, me and a colleague I'm working with, we created this entire packet for an investor who's, who does activism. All these companies, what happened? And he, and he started to want to say, what were the metrics? What did you do? And he, it's like what he can't get is the culture conversation, the soft stuff, which is the hard stuff it doesn't fit neatly in an Excel spreadsheet. And there's this myth, which is a really, just really not a useful, it's not true, it's a myth, that the soft stuff, if, it, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And it's like how insane, it's, it's asinine, actually. You know, what we're doing in this program when they've done long-term studies on this work at companies, three to 500% performance increases at companies, three to five X profits, but sales organizations, three to five X in sales. And then the low level conversation is what's the tactic that you use to get more sales? Holy shit. But that's how people are operating. So this is a really high level conversation that most people aren't having. And to, and when you start delivering, it's going to occur for others almost like magic. Now, we know it's not magic. There's, there's nothing mystical about this. But it looks like that because they're asking, they're in a, diff, they're in a different game than you're playing. Well, they're in the success game. They're in the success game. Nothing wrong with it. It's just not as effective. And generally what we have found is 
when companies want to take their game to the next level, they go, oh, we have an execution issue. No, it's not an execution issue. This is the place to look. 99% of the time, this resolves that shit. But they, they just want to figure out how do we be more efficient? They bring in McKinsey or some consulting firm and try to make things a little bit more efficient. Nothing wrong with that game. It does produce some results, but this is at a whole different level. Yeah, that's, that's really good and pungent. There's, uh, as you go through your life, there's actually three ways that you are in life. Be, do, or have. And in the be, do, or have way of being in life, leadership is a being conversation that inspires people into doing so that they have. So leaders don't really do anything. Rather than, that's why they say they're inspiring. The word inspiration means filled with the breath of God. So you're filled with the breath of God. You're inspiring people the way you're being a leader. And then people are doing remarkable things. They're taking on things that are projects that are worth failing at. And in taking on projects that are worth failing at, they grow and they develop. And they have something that they would not have had before, just being ordinary. So the people have, and that's why there's only three real distinctions, which are aha and wow. I don't know if you've had that conversation. You probably have. Yeah, in the two-day. Jeffrey, this is is distinct from some flavor of the fucking month coming into a company that probably brought in by an HR person, and they're doing some inspirational, motivational speech. That might sound really nice, and it checks off a box, but doesn't actually cause anything. You know, it's really interesting. Harvard did a study a number of years ago, and this was out of Harvard Business School. And it was a well, really well-designed study and everything. And what they discovered was that there are two places, two places in the business community or in the business culture that are absolutely worthless. And one of them is team building. I don't know how many team building processes that you've been on, but usually it's on a Friday afternoon and the culmination is somebody falls off a table and you catch them and we trust each other and you hug each other and you say kumbaya and then you go away. Then you come back on Monday and nothing's changed. So team building. And then the second one is diversity training. Total racket, total waste of time, total waste of money. We spend well over $50 billion a year in American corporate industry and so on like that, doing those two, and they're completely wasteful. They're both in the the realm of the HR departments, and that's what the HR department does because they're, among other things, they've got some sort of credibility or certification from HR and like a degree, maybe even a doctorate, so like that, and they've never, ever heard it. So they just do what they think and what they learned back when they were studying. One of the troubles with HR is HR does not have a seat in the C-suite. And it's built into being an HR that there's a a kind of a chip on the shoulder resentment that they don't have a vote in the C-suite. That what they are is they're just carrying water for for the operations guy or for the whoever assigned them, the finance department or stuff like that. And so they run around and they, okay, I'm going to provide the doing this. And and one of the things that they do often, and it's expensive, 
is they get motivational speakers in, it makes zero difference. It's a total waste of time, money, and effort like that. So knowing that, one of the things that we're providing here is we're trying to provide leadership. And leadership is grounded in listening. So it's the listening people into existence is great and doing it as a professional. You don't take a break. You just don't take a break from it. Kim, did you have a question? I saw you raising your hand earlier. It was similar to what Jeffrey was going through. And I noticed with what I have been, I guess, focused in on the last couple of days is just that I it's I need more patience and opportunities to witness other people's values at work. Mm-hmm. I was going to say or when I raised my hand, but yeah. yeah. One of the things is you got to go to them, Kim, and you you can't really there you can't do push technology with people. If you look at it through the marketing lens, mm. it's all pull, and it's all pull that they are inspired to follow you because you have a purpose that is a higher purpose. So getting yourself really clear about what is what is your higher purpose and How would you know it if you achieved it? This question about measuring, like it isn't real if you can't measure it. Engineers say this a lot. I've Mm. worked with engineers quite a bit. Insane. Insane. (laughs) Uh, You know, here's what you say to them. When somebody says, if you can't measure it, it's not real. You say, hmm, have you ever been in love? Hmm. Have you ever been in love? They found a way to measure it. (laughs) Yeah. I'll tell you, if you're doing your love as a measured state of being you're not in love in the first place and and you're going to be divorced soon yeah that makes sense what you're saying though um finding my purpose and basically what you said to jeffrey about the will to meaning that'll bring the values out of them oh yeah let me give you another word that i think will be of value to you kim and i think everybody else and the word is surrender and I want to say it in a specific way. It's called surrendering first into your own greatness and then surrendering into the greatness of others. People are not good at this. It feels, oh, it's weak or it's vulnerable or whatever. No, it's a, it's a sign of strength. It's a, what leaders do. They surrender into the greatness of the people they lead. But the greatness that they're surrendering into is not this kind of bag of flesh that is over there that they're looking at. They're surrendering into the meaning and the fulfillment of the meaning of the relationship. So surrender is a big part, especially going from stage two, three to stage four. The only way you can get into it is surrender into it and surrender to the people you're working with and surrender into the greater idea. Mm. Surrender is a big deal about stage four. John, uh, if, if I may ask one, one question. Yeah, you, can, you can ask all you want. Um, I'm already madly in love with you, so hey, <laughs> you know, just hit it out, rip, rip away. Uh, one thing you said that stood out to me is leadership is about showing up whether you want to or not. And well, what happens when you're in a scenario where there's a long period of time where it's what you don't want to be doing or it's what you want to be doing, but it's not pleasurable. 
at what point do you seek a reward or maybe that's coming from a part of the cultural map that's bad or maybe I'm not asking this the right way, but sometimes no, I, no, that, I feel uh, that way. I think that's a very pungent question. I, I think it goes back to meaning again, Shaz, and I think it's, are you fulfilling on your meaning? See, like Aristotle said, the aim is for good. So if you're not having an experience of good, you're not having an experience of fulfillment of your meaning, and all you're doing is getting in there and plugging away and being a great guy and all of that sort of stuff. Nah, this is not about that. Let's see. The coaching, the coaching is really easy and pungent on that. It's called stop doing that. Now you have choice. When you're going, well, I'm stuck here. It's my paycheck. I got to pay the rent and everything else. I go, yeah, yeah. But you could make a plan, and in two or three or six months, you could be somewhere else doing something else that is actually much more fulfilling. Does that respond to you, Shaz? Does that make sense? No, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, good. Another thing that you notice, I do it so that I'm doing this, so I'm demonstrating something, is people ask you a question, you respond to the question, and then you ask them if, they, if it made sense to them. You check in. The reason is leaders lead by virtue of the permission of the people they lead. And so the way that you know that you're still the leader of these people is you check in and make sure that your communication is landing in a way that is benefiting to them. So I could just say the answer and move on and say the answer and move on. That's what... But that's not what leadership is about. Leadership is like responding to the person, going to the person they're asking, giving them the best answer you have, and then saying, does that make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, talk about it a little more or find somebody else who could say it better. Does that make sense? There you go. And you guys notice that's why when you know we're in the classrooms, and I'll ask everyone, not only is that clear what I'm saying, but is there any yeah, buts, what ifs, concerns, things that, cause I, and I want to hear those things if they're in the way, because my job isn't for you to just blindly agree with me. And it's not that I said a nice thing and I did a good job. Look at Eric, didn't get, that's not the point. And I always know when what I said didn't get in, if I have a conversation and then someone goes, oh, you really did a good job in that conversation. It's like, Shit, that's on me. That's not, that is not what I want. That is, if that's the end result, I did not do my job effectively. Is that clear what I'm saying, guys? Yeah, Eric, you did a good job there. But thank, thank you. That was a really good <laughs> job for answering uh, answer my question. What, wonderful answer. A really thank brilliant you. answer. Yeah. yeah. If I want to pitch, I'll just call you Jeff. I really want to piss you off there. That would be an error, Eric. Okay, <laughs> I got it. So we're going to go into a breakout room just a matter of time. So we're going to do 20 minutes and we're actually just going to stay in the main room. So it's going to be a room of four of y'all. And so John, you'll participate with everyone else. And what I want you guys to discuss, no coaching, just a free form conversation, but have a conversation on... It's a riff. It's just a jam session. Just a riff. It's exactly what we're doing. We're just having a jam session. 
is notice we talked a little bit about honoring the process and being process driven, not just the amateur outcome driven conversation. And you want to start to look at where are you honor, where are you actually currently honoring the process from a stage four point of view, unfolding your noble cause. And then where are you not consistent? Where are you not aligned? Or where do you tell yourself you are and you are? So you want to look at that. That's the first thing. And then the second thing I want you guys just to have in the background is what are you actually seeing in this conversation that John has generously shared his time with today? And just what's been opening up for you? What are you seeing? What connections are you making? And the, the, the little pro tip that I'll, I'll give you guys is start to look where you can make connections to other distinctions in tribal leadership. Remember, one of the things I said that first day, maybe you don't remember, but I'll remind you if you don't remember. One of the first things I said in the two-day is that every single model and distinction that is brought up interacts with every other tool, model, and distinction in, in the work. And at first, sometimes it'll look like this has nothing to do with anything or it'll look like an isolated thing. And then as the two days unfold, you start to see things and things start to open up. So you want to do that again here. Take a look at what you're seeing today, what's opening up for you this evening, and look to see how you can make connections to the other distinctions in the program. And do it for you. See, one of the ways... Some of you have talked, I know John, I've talked to you about this. I don't keep notebooks. I keep a Zettelkasten. And it's, a, it's a, basically a way of taking notes where you're comparing every note you take to every other note you've ever taken. And over time, the system will give you outputs on insights that you never would have had from any individual idea. You're constantly making connections. The reason that works so much better than general note-taking, which is what most people do, it's because the brain does not work in a linear fashion. It actually works by making connections and, and come, and then it, you create new insights and new ideas. So you want to look at it from that place. Anyone have any questions before we go for the 20 minutes? Okay. Can you just refresh our memory on the conversation? I know you said it, but it was three minutes ago. Yeah, you just want to, the first one is you just want to honor, you want to look at where you're honoring the process and then also look like where you're not congruent to that. And from a stage four point of view, where, where you're not unfolding your noble cause, where you're not actually living life from a place of meaning. Because there's an impact there. And sometimes if we get really good at the success conversation, the stage three success conversation, we get very good at plowing through life at the expense of doing things that really fulfill us and give us meaning. And it, the, the better you get at it, the more fucked you are because it creates a psychological trap. It can be really painful to rip that bandaid off. Some of you have experienced. Clear? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe, but I'll, I'll, Jeff, I've got a tip for you, okay? Because like you say, you have a hard time entering into the conversation and driving it. You don't have any time, no problem talking once you get it going, but getting it organized so that you can do it. That was a little bit of what your question was with me a little bit earlier. 
Yes, John. So here's the tip, and this is for everybody. Start in the middle. Okay. Start in the middle. Start with what you're present to and then wander around, and you will actually find your groove. Yeah, Jeffrey, this is the leaning in conversation. I got it. I get it. Oh, and John, a request. Please call me Jeffrey. Okay. Happy to. Great. Thanks for leaning in. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're in 20 minutes now. We'll be back at 10 o'clock. We'll just go over the assignments for two minutes. We'll, We'll be like five minutes over tonight and then we'll finish up. So I'll see you guys back in 20. Great. John, I, I get why why you like to uh, play ping pong because hearing you speak, I just I want to I want to play ping pong with you. It's I don't know if you do you know you probably do. There's an incredible story, and this is about a noble cause, so maybe it'll segue in that Herbie Hancock tells about working with Miles Davis. This story, oh, what an incredible story. <laughs> you know it, right? It's yeah. I was thinking about it a lot during your sharing and, and if you don't know the story, basically, is for the for Shaz and, and, and Kim really fast. It's uh, he makes a big mistake. He's playing with Miles Davis. He makes a huge mistake. He plays the totally wrong chord, and he's he Herbie Hancock is so upset. The moment he hits the chord, he literally puts his face in his hands, and he goes, "Oh my God, that was terrible!" And Miles, who's a genius among geniuses, is completely unfazed by it. Acts as if it was completely correct, completely normal. Plays rips. As, and makes the chord. So not only does he uh, not get phased by it, he actually makes the, the mistake beautiful and correct and right. And that's a story about riffing and uh, certainly a noble cause that Miles was on. And that would be, I think, John, tell me if this is correct, with triadic relationships, perhaps Herbie's uh, triad was incorrect, but that's like Herbie's part of the triad Miles is part of the triad and the idea of creating great music or following that is a third thing, not a person, but a noble cause or concept that's part of the triad. Would you say that's yeah, kind that's, of true? Yeah, that's really right. It's the purpose is jazz to make music. Right. And in that moment, when Herbie went and uh, apologized to him after they got off stage and Miles looked at him and said, what are you talking about? And he said, I hit a wrong note. And Miles Davis said, there are no wrong notes. That was it. There are no wrong notes. It's what you do with them. Yep. And he walked away from it. <laughs> I love it. I don't know, Shaz, Kim, good to see you both. I, I, Shaz, I know you're not feeling well. I'm not feeling well either, but you're making me feel better, all of you. Yeah. Well, one day at a time, like I keep saying. Yeah, this, the, the question that Eric posed has been particularly relevant to me, where you're not honoring process over outcome. You know, I'm going, Eric is going through this too with the the markets right now. And I'm constantly seeking pleasurable outcomes and I'm, I'm getting none of that. So it's creating a negative feedback loop. So now I've, I've tried to take a step back and say, where am I? Why am I even doing this? And the answer is because I'm curious about the world and I want to learn. And I'm trying to anchor to that by not, let me go learn about what's going on with this company or this situation and trying to lean into that and leverage that to be an example for other people who are also doing the same pleasure seeking behavior and getting punished by doing that, watching your positions go down every day. So that that's what I'm trying to do right now is trying to just focus on that learning aspect of that and 
developing curiosity, which is the value here and just really focusing on that to hopefully over time that leads to good outcomes, but even just not even anchoring to the outcome, just anchoring to a process that facilitates learning and therefore facilitates an understanding such that you can make decisions. That's where I am. There's something great about that that attached to what uh, Kimberly was talking about a little while ago when she was saying, I guess I have to learn patience. And she mentioned patience. In your case, I think it would be forgiveness. So not a lot of people know what the actual meaning of forgiveness is, but what it, and it's right there in the word. It means to give as before. So whatever the incident was, if you can actually give being like how the person was, including you, before the incident. So I say that you're uh, it, probably not a bad idea for you to dwell in forgiveness. First, because yeah. the market is doing its cycle. That's all it's doing. Yes. Yeah, the amount of brain damage you create on yourself is, is, more, is worse than the actual cycle. Precisely. And more to come, by the way. Inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do when you drop about $6 trillion into the economy and say, this is going to fix things? It's like, what form of idiocy did we vote for? Has has to come out. I mean, it's it's natural. Um, Every single time. It happens every single time that they do that. And they do that every single time. Yeah. Forgiveness is a tough one for me, historically. Yes. Maybe it's a tough one for most people. Curious if you have any advice on how to better dwell in forgiveness. Well, I have a question, first of all, that has to do with uh, something else. Are you by any chance a first son? Yep. Okay. Of of immigrant family, yes. Yeah, yeah, first son. Case closed. (laughs) (laughs) You're guilty. (laughs) Everything is on your shoulders. Everything is expected of you. And you don't want to, because like, I'm not here for you, Shaz. I am here for the dreams and aspirations of your mother and father and your grandparents. And I'm here for the legacy and promise that you're going to be leaving to your children and grandchildren. But you're the guy I get to work with. And you're at less than optimum workability when you are living in your head, not forgiving yourself rather than designing where do I go in the face of everything to fulfill on my aim or my goal or my noble cause. So what this question was, I was like, where are you not being the noble cause? Like that. So it's not easy. I'm a first son too. Okay. Kind of keeps me moving. <laughs> it's in the DNA. And stuff like that. It just seems there's probably something in there that uh, you are making up about you are uh, in danger of disappointing your parents or something like that. I can get that completely. I can get that completely. It's a story. Okay. When you have an accident, you fall down and you break your arm or something like that. There's a saying. And the saying is, pain is mandatory, suffering is optional. Okay? 
Now you're in a place where you can make it up that there's a lot of pain in the way that, you know, it's going with you and your positions in the market and everything. There's actually no pain. Pain is when I hit you in the face, but you are in the suffering mode and all suffering is a story. Okay. And it's a big story for the big brother, for the number one son. It's a big story. You know, you're stepping into your father's footprints and you're stepping into your, and you've got a culture and a community around you. Uh, were you also, did you come here from somewhere or were you born in the U.S.? I, I was born in the U.S. My parents were, came here in the 80s. From Mumbai. I've been to Mumbai. I taught leadership oh, really? in Mumbai. Yeah. And I taught in Chennai as well and in Sri Lanka. So I've been in your neighborhood. <laughs> and you're you're a special quality, but I think you're a little bit unfocused as to what is your uh, aim or your purpose, your meaning, like that. And whatever the assignment's going to be this week, and I know it's going to be a, an assignment for you to go out and practice so you can learn and correct. I know it's going to be that way, but I would say, I would dwell. I wouldn't do anything with it. I would just, what is my purpose? Yeah. But I've been focused on it. I have not come up with the great answer. Right. Maybe we need to take my out of there and just say, what is a great purpose? Yeah. Uh, something, something you could get jazzed about. Let's take and take you out of the thing because uh, all of the, all of everything that's going on with you is just about you. It's not about the market at all. Yeah, appreciate that. Good stuff. Does that make sense to you? Is that useful for you? Yes. Okay, good. Kimberly, how about you? I just keep thinking about work. (laughs) I've been really present to basically my place or my role. And I think I, I feel like I'm experiencing or noticing it in a whole new way as of lately, as of, I don't know, whenever, like I, so I got lunch with my, the CEO of my company on Monday and I, that kind of inspired me more to actually uplift my team more because my complaints about the team were fully acknowledged and very much on his radar and my way of handling things, if I, I wouldn't have handled things that way. And that's generally, we were very much on the same page about how one ought to handle things basically in the world of being a professional. And so I just noticed that I keep like fixating on what, like what my teammates and my boss are like struggling with or what gets in their way. Right. And then I'm dwelling on how I can remove those things or just make them less of an obstacle or I don't know, just not obviously not ruffle any feathers in a way to be like unsuccessful, but also just be like, no, like we're above this. Like we're better than that. Like we can do better than that. Yeah, I'm just like stuck in that place right now. And I've been there for the last day or so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I told 
you a little bit earlier, one of the key words for you to take into account is surrender, which is for everybody. And there's a word that accompanies surrender, which is permission. Mm. Giving yourself permission to lead. Rather than trying to do it the right way, I would not recommend you try and do it the right way. You will not do it the right way. No. But do it the human way. And that is where you're a pro. So I have a friend, a partner, that he was uh, highly successful in the military. Flew helicopters, trained. He taught leadership at West Point. He also was teaching leadership at uh, Indiana University. And he retired as a lieutenant colonel, but he actually caused a number of generals. And he has invented a whole conversation that I, you could probably dwell in. And the conversation is called lead from your current position. Mm. So give yourself permission to lead from your current position and lead in a human way. You will make mistakes and you will correct. Yeah. Like that. Because people are looking to you and they need you. And if you don't show up, they're not going to have the the benefit of the contribution that you have the ability to make. So I won't say things like be bold or stuff like that. I'm not saying that's not appropriate here. But what is that surrendering to the greatness of the group, give yourself permission to lead from your current position as a human being. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. So how do these conversations land with you, Jeffrey? Unmuting. I'm, I thought, for me, a lot of what you were speaking to in answer to my earlier questions was really relevant. And I, th- I think... The I wrote it down, but the basically getting into the situation, not quite knowing, however you phrased it. In the middle. Yeah. I was, and it's also interesting hearing what you said about being the, the, the eldest son. Uh, I don't have his same background. I can appreciate it and get, I can get it. I can grok it. I don't have the same background. Wow. Have you read Stranger in a Strange Land? No, but I've read about it and I know the word. And I, yeah, I, yeah, read it. Read it. Yeah, that's where on my list. I'll put it on my list. Yeah, um, it's great. It's a great read. But I'm I'm an only child. You're an only child. Okay, I'm an only child, which is also a firstborn son. And yeah. not only am I an only child, but I'm an only child after three failed pregnancies. And I think there's I think that there's in in the world of surrender. I think there's a lot of pressure on me, from outside, from me, from whatever, right, internalized, blah, 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 of getting it right the first time, of perfectionism. And I think that maybe the fear, the concern, the whatever's around that kind of uh, keeps me in somewhat of a prison. Yes, really good and really perceptive. Here's the thing to remember, just as a fact of uh, reality. Yeah. You're in the 95th, 96th, 97th percentile. So there's a phrase that is you might want to use. I wouldn't say it out loud. 
with the phrases, fuck them if they can't take a joke. You just shoot your best shot. You just shoot your best shot. And the thing about it is you've always got room to correct because you're in the 96th percentile. It's very true. I, you're, I don't mean that in a whatever. I know that's true. Yeah. Listen, you've won everywhere you've gone. You've been successful every again. And occasionally it maybe took you a little bit longer because you had to correct and then you corrected and, and then you came out on top. Your entire life is organized around victory. Your entire life is organized around finding the good and delivering the good and being victorious in whatever it is. Like, for example, everything has a purpose. Medicine has a purpose and the purpose is health. And health is victory. Okay. Financial planning and the purpose is financial security and financial security is victory. And education, the purpose of education is learning. And when learning occurs, it's a victory. So we're all engaged in kind of an effort towards victory. And the people that you're engaged with are all in the 95th plus percentile. So you're dealing with the cream of the crop. And not only are you dealing with the cream of the crop, Shaz, you are the cream of the crop. And having without being arrogant about it, having an acceptance, a surrender into that you are not only dealing with the cream of the crop, but you are the cream of the crop, actually opens you up to even be more useful in what your life is actually about. And I will tell you what your life's about as a leader is it's about service and contribution. So there... How do you know that you're in the, at the top, you know? Just take a look at your life, okay? School was easy for you. You were able to audit and cherry pick and still get through school, and you probably scored in the top quartile of your class, if not in the top high percentage, You're successful with people. You are a likable guy that people want to be around. You have entered and you're in a very fast-paced and difficult kind of profession. I was doing that for a while. I was trading futures for about four or five years. It's crazy now. Futures are crazy. Yeah, and it was insane then. This was going into 1987, the 87 crash. Brutal. And I was a technical trader, which I have a feeling you're pretty technical. Fundamental. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. It's brutal. No. How do you know? How do you know is uh, that you've always actually been able to rise to the top? You know, it's like uh, in the olden days, they used to take milk bottles and they would put a bottle of milk outside. And during the day, the cream would rise to the top of the milk. That's where the idea of cream of the crop or the cream, that's where that came from. And what you do is you naturally, it's not an effort. You naturally, organically, over time, rise to the top, whatever thing it is that you are concerned with or uh, engaged in. And over time, you will play, learn, correct, 
your way to where you do well. And now it's expanded to the point where you're playing, learning, and correcting so that others do well, so that ultimately others are playing, learning, and correcting so all do well. That's the natural progression of that. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.